All right, how about now? Okay. <laughs> this is just a normal occur occurrence for me. Obviously, there's something just magnetic and exciting about me that I short out all the mics, so that's what I'm going to go with. All right, well, good morning. For those of you that I may not know, my name's Deirdre Chance. I'm a member of the ministry team, and I wanted to start off by just thanking the elders for inviting me back to preach again. Um, and also to thank my husband for his continued leadership and investment over me. Otherwise, I would not be here this morning. So this morning, we're going to continue to look at the series Gospel Identity and how um, gender, sexuality, and culture forms our identity. Specifically, this morning, we're going to be looking at our identity and the seeming control of emotions and feelings. And actually, I wanted to do a little review of some of the topics that Lawrence preached on last week. If you were here, you probably remembered that he looked at different expressions of our sexuality, maybe different worldviews of how we might see sexuality expressed in our culture today. And the first one he talked about was that there's, just, there's one worldview, that sexuality is natural and therefore it should not be prohibited. People should be free to explore and express it as they wish. And so this has also been termed the pure relationship by um, Anthony Giddens. He's a British social theorist. He's a well-known sociologist. He wrote a book called Transforming Intimacy. Then there's also another worldview where love rules all. So as long as you are pursuing love, then you're good to go. So that'd be kind of more the romantic worldview. That's the goal of the relationship. It's kind of looking for the steadfastness of a soulmate. And then the third, probably oldest, most religious worldview on exploring sexuality, expressing sexuality, would be institutional matrimony. And so Lawrence talks some about that and how maybe some in that camp thinks we shouldn't talk about it. It's maybe just a necessity that we don't really acknowledge. So, but I wanted to start off our time by just exploring more this idea of the first one, the pure relationship that's probably the newest, and it's, I think, more pervasive in our culture than maybe we realize. Um, the pure relationship, Anthony Giddens says in that book, Transformation of Intimacy, that um, love is more confluent or liquid. So the satisfa and satisfaction is a necessary part for both parties to stay in the relationship. And then Michael Carey, he writes for Slate Magazine, which is an online magazine, maybe a little more left, liberal-minded magazine. He posed also that maybe some people are just innately non-monogamous. And that's based on their emotional satisfaction in a relationship. And so his quote is, I have it here, there are some people whose innate personality traits make it very difficult to live happily in a monogamous relationship, but relatively happy in an open one, where it's fluid, you can pursue what you want. So sure, there may be a larger fraction of non-monogamous for whom their unconventional relationship is optional or a choice, but there are almost certainly also some obligate non-monogamous who would never feel emotionally satisfied and healthy in a monogamous relationship, any more than a gay man would be satisfied and healthy in a straight marriage. And for sure, that's one argument for homosexuality, that there could never be emotional satisfaction in a straight relationship, and that is 
an argument for homosexuality. Lawrence is actually going to be talking about homosexuality in two weeks, so I'm going to let him cover the specificity of that, and I'm just going to lump all of sexuality together. So monogamous, non-monogamous, heterosexual, homosexual, just all sexuality, it seems at least our modern expression of our sexuality is somewhat based on our emotions, the emotional satisfaction that we can get. That's at least part of how we see expressing our sexuality. And emotions and feelings that are at work in our body are real. They're a complicated part of our body, but they're there. Um, they're not good, they're not evil, they just are, like any other organ, like your skin. It's not evil, it's not bad, it's there. It has limitations and shortcomings, but it's there, it's part of our body. And, you know, it's interesting, actually, the Stoics, if you know, they were philosophers in Greek time, and they thought the ideal way to reach perfection for humanity is to stuff those emotions and feelings. If you can just stuff it, you're doing good. And that's where the term Stoic comes from. And then, of course, Epicurean was like the reaction to that, that no, just pleasure, that's how we get to perfection. Um, but so today, science, um, there's areas of our brain that are implicated. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in a minute. But there's areas of our brain that are implicated in emotions and feelings as well as hormones. And so I have a diagram up there. And basically... Um, the emotions are like the physiological, anatomical part of our body, and then the feelings are sort of our mental cognitions attached to our thoughts afterwards. So you can kind of see that diagram up there. It can, the emotions can cause our mind to start thinking about what we feel. The feelings can lead to certain thoughts, and then it could go backwards. We could be thinking about things, and then we have feelings, and then we have emotions. Um, Antonio Damasio, a professor of neuroscience, I've got his quote down there at the bottom if you can see all of it. He puts it this way. He says, feelings are mental experiences of body states which arise as the brain interprets the emotions, themselves physical states arising from the body's responses to external stimuli. So we've got external stimuli. Different, it seems like now that different circumstances can impact our emotions and feelings. If this starts to be confusing, that's kind of my goal, so good. <laughs> but so we've got emotions and feelings can play into our sexuality. And then different circumstances can play into our emotions and feelings that play into our sex sexuality. So what are different circumstances? I actually just finished my master's in May, and the core of my thesis was how do traumatic stressors physiologically impact us. Like, I wanted to know, like, when people say, oh, stress can cause you a heart attack, I'm like, how? How does that happen? So that was the core of my thesis. And then as I was continuing on in my research, it turns out that the limbic system of your brain, which is kind of that inner part of your brain, um, actually is activated by different external stimuli. So if you see, perceive something um, dangerous or threatening to you, that inner part of your brain will start releasing hormones. Hormones are just chemicals that are produced in one part of the body but impact another part. So these hormones are released. And then you may start to have like a rapid heart rate or you're having trouble breathing, or your blood pressure increases, or you're starting to sweat a lot. Also, your metabolism, so you can have a burst of energy, is implicated as well. And this is kind of all part of that fight-flight or freeze response mechanism that's part of our body. Um, and it turns out, 
also that there's good empirical evidence to show that 90% of us will be impacted by traumatic stressors in our lives. So uh, traumatic stressors, just some basic examples, just a handful of them that I took down would be uh, real or perceived threats of danger, excuse me, real or perceived threats of death, physical abuse, contact, physical abuse, as well as neglect, sexual abuse, the death of a parent or someone or a loved one, someone close to you, um, divorce of your parents, um, community violence, medical trauma, either from a single medical event or from several medical events or natural disasters. And most of the time when we're exposed to these external stimuli that can um, sort of activate that limbic system of our brain that produces hormones, that causes emotions and feelings, most of the time we can cope with that. But sometimes, because those traumatic events are so intense or because they're so frequent, or sometimes because those traumatic events happen at key critical, critical uh, brain growth stages of our life, sometimes a person can become known as what science calls hypercortisolemic. So that's one of the hormones, cortisol. It can stay in your body a little bit longer than adrenaline. And so when that person is in that hypercortisolemic state, it's sort of like their bucket is full. And then just the slightest trigger can cause their bucket to overflow. It, it's like they're in this elevated fight, flight, or freeze response. And so again, the slightest trigger can produce in them feelings of aggression, emotions of anger, and outbursts of anger. Or it can go on the other end. It can cause anxiety or depression, and then all those ensuing thoughts that go with that that can contribute to sleep deprivation, and all the things that go with that. If you've ever been in like a good bang up car crash, you may have experienced something like this, where then just the flicker of the taillights in front of you suddenly causes your heart to race and you're gripping your steering wheel and you're sweating. That's the same sort of thing. Um, but besides the traumatic experiences, there's also just the day-to-day -day stressors that we're all gonna deal with, other external stimuli that can cause emotions and feelings in us. I teach middle school and high school, and I regularly see my students struggling to navigate that world where they feel pressure and stress to achieve academically, or they feel pressure and stress to achieve in sports, or they feel pressure and stress to manage an intense schedule from drama and musical type productions. And all the, or, or they feel stressed from trying to manage all three of those and feel successful that they've had some productive outcome. And all the while, they're trying to find their niche or groove socially. Will they fit in with others? Do they have enough followers and likes and Snapchat, Snapchat streaks? And I just saw on Tech Junkies that like the leaders of streaks have like over a thousand. Pretty sure they don't just have one streak going on either. But that pressure, I mean, you've kept up the streak for 300 days. How could you possibly stop it? Um, and all those feelings and emotions and thoughts that they try to navigate. You know, if they achieve, do they feel confident? If they don't achieve, do they feel rejected, depressed? You know, and then I look at us adults and I think, am I really all that different? <laughs> I get judged on my outcome based. I need data to show that I'm hitting certain goals. And I have emotions and feelings and thoughts if I'm not hitting what I think I ought to hit. 
and I've worked in three different schools, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and in Woodbury, and each one has a unique culture. And I think, am I gonna fit in? They all dress a little bit different at each of those. Am I gonna fit in? What are they, are they gonna accept me if I hold this worldview or this religious view or what I know about music or movies or those things? Um, and at the same time, I think we have to also manage the stresses at home. When I was at home, I felt a lot of pressure probably tied mostly because I couldn't produce those outcomes that I wanted. There was a lot of stimuli coming at me. It wasn't regular. I couldn't manage it. I felt overwhelmed. Sometimes I felt like I was playing a giant game of dodgeball, dodging everything that came at me. More often, I felt like I was playing a game of twister, like could I put my elbow on the green circle and stretch and put my foot on the blue one and my knee on the red one? Or sometimes <laughs> I felt stress and emotions and feelings due to my family members. What do their actions, how does their dress reflect on me? Um, and so we try to manage all these feelings and thoughts and emotions that are tied together. And it is a dizzying web-like nature. You know, again, we have our modern sexuality that we're trying to figure out. Emotions and feelings play into that. External stimuli affects our emotions and feelings, and then it can start to come full circle, where then we have emotions and feelings and thoughts, and those start to drive our behavior and our choices now. Like if you have a hard day, maybe even you had a traumatic experience, what do you do with that? Do you give yourself a free pass because you've had that hard day? Do you give yourself a free pass because you've had something really traumatic happen? And do you allow those emotions and feelings and thoughts to drive to almost control you because you just can't face or deal with whatever it is? Are you like the Stoics where maybe you push it down and suppress it because you can't deal with it and handle it? Or do you give yourself a pass to distract from all of that? Maybe you binge, maybe binge on Netflix, or maybe more likely binge on social media. You know, smartphone uh, usage increased exponentially from 2007 to 2015, so now in 2018, they're collecting all this data and they're looking back at those years. And they found that uh, for teenagers, ages 13 to 18, if they're binging, if they are on their devices, not even just social media, if they're on their devices for five hours or more a day, they have a, let me find the stat, um, they have a 48% higher percentage, no, they have a 48% chance of reporting at least one suicide-related outcome compared to 28%, so it's 20% higher compared to those who are on their device for just an hour a day. If you're a girl, it's even worse. It's 65% for a suicide-related outcome. And then depression, if you're on it five hours or more, a girl ages 13 to 18, uh, severe depression, 58% likelihood for that. If you're ages 19 to 32, it's not much better, a little better, but not much. Uh, for those who are on their social media, this time, social media, um, the most, they're almost three times more likely to be severely depressed. It's not a causation, but it's a correlation. And we binge, 
because we can't look and we can't handle and we can't face. Or maybe it's just binging on food. Or maybe it's starving ourselves. Or maybe it's alcohol or drugs to numb ourselves because we don't want to face the emotions and the feelings and all the thoughts that come with it. Or maybe instead of distracting, maybe we try to find some release. Cutting. Cutting is actually increasing among youth, and it provides an immediate sense of relief. It's a self-injury that attempts to soothe an uncomfortable, uncontrollable emotional state. It's for problems out of our control. So someone cuts because that's something they can control and deal with. Or I've talked to grown men who said that they started with porn because it provided a release. They couldn't handle the emotions and the feelings and the thoughts, whether it's tied to sexuality or not, and so they clicked to have a release. Or exercise. Exercise can become all-consuming, where that's the only way we know how to deal with things, or shopping, or hoarding, or work. We can turn all these things into a release or distraction. And a lot of times, what seems to start as a seamless, harmless action, I'll just click, I'll just binge, I'll just numb, I'll just distract, starts to take control of us. It's what Michael Wilkerson calls in his book, Voluntary Slavery. We volunteered for it. We started it. But then it seems to take control of us because it's the only way we know how to cope and deal with emotions and feelings and thoughts and circumstances. And so again, we're at this sort of complicated web-like state. We have our sexuality we're trying to figure out. Our emotions and feelings play into that. Our circumstances play into our emotions and feelings. Then they start driving our decisions, our actions, our behavior. So what defines us? What forms our identity? Is it the circumstances? Is it physiological effects of the hormones pumping through our body? Is it emotions, feelings? Is it addictions, voluntary slavery? I would say yes to any of those. It's anything that you give that free pass to, that you allow to control you. And that's where I think 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 17, can offer us hope and sound insight. So 2 Corinthians is actually a very personal an emotional letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. It's not his first letter to them. And he actually lived with the Corinthians for over a year and a half. And in the first four chapters, he writes to them about his sufferings and his difficulties. Sometimes he's suffering on behalf of the Corinthians. Sometimes he's just suffering. And he was actually, I think it's kind of interesting, he was actually working as a tent maker while in Corinth. You may remember that from Acts 18. He worked with Aquila and Priscilla as a tent maker. Claudius had kicked out all the Jews in Rome. And so that's where Paul found in Corinth, that's where Paul found Aquila and Priscilla and was working as a tent maker with them. And so there were Israelites there in Corinth. And Paul starts off with this imagery of our earthly bodies, emotions, feelings, hormones, sexuality, and all, as tents. 
And this imagery, I mean, I think for any of us, it gives an imagery of limitations and shortcomings and weaknesses, but especially for the Israelite. The Israelite's mind would have gone back to their forefathers wandering through the deserts, through the desert. And while they wandered in the desert, they lacked. They had shortcomings. At times, they lacked water. At times, they lacked food. At times, they just lacked that security of a permanent place to call their home. And if you're from a different country or you've ever immigrated or lived in a different place for a time, that resonates with you, what it's like not to have a place to call your own. And again, for us today, the modern reader, I think we get <laughs> that living in a tent has its limitations. You know, Paul also talked about in those verses that Laura read that it's also like being unclothed versus clothed. You know, when we're unclothed, we feel exposed, we feel vulnerable. Our tent, the earth, our body as a tent, is just um, has shortcomings and weaknesses. Um, I actually have a picture. If I invited you over to my house and I was like, here's where I live, <laughs> I have a feeling you think, wow, she's got a lot of limitations there. I actually snapped that picture when Rebecca and I were out in Wyoming. We were just there for a week for a youth rodeo. Everybody else was staying like in that horse trailer, see with that nice air conditioning unit on the roof <laughs> or in the camper with the bump out slider. And I mean, I felt bad for the people staying in the tent just for a week, much less if you lived there, if you wandered in a place that wasn't even your own for 40 years. That's limitations, and that's what Paul says it's like to be living in this fleshly body. You know, he said in verse 4, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Yeah, you're going to groan. You're going to be burdened. That's how we feel when we're going through those stressful circumstances that we can't control. From the traumatic to the day-to-day -to, -day, to trying to figure out sexuality, we're burdened under the emotions and feelings and thoughts, and we groan. I was just talking to somebody a couple weeks ago, and they were sharing about how they went through this situation, and they said, and I felt anxiety. I think they might have even said I was overcome by anxiety. And then they add it quickly, and I don't think that's unusual if you go through this situation. God is really normalizing for us that you're right. It's not unusual to be going through these emotions and feelings and thoughts this side of the fall. He's validating for us our human condition in this earthly tent. Do you feel despair? Because Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.8 that he despaired so much that he wanted to die. Do you feel anger? Because Ephesians talks about be angry, don't sin, but be angry. Yeah, you're going to feel anger, that frustrated, um, perplexed type of anger. And 2 Corinthians 4, just before this, Paul talks about having afflictions and being perplexed and being persecuted. And again, God is sharing for us that is the normal human condition this side of the fall. But thankfully, that's not where Paul or God leaves us. <laughs> thankfully for the Christian, this life is not as good as, this, as it gets. Um, there's hope for us. Paul goes on to share about a future hope. That we can be confident that, again, this is not as good as it gets. That one day we are going to dwell in actually a building from the Lord with him eternally. 
and that we even have the Spirit right now guaranteeing of us of that. And so when times are tough, we can think, okay, yeah, this is what I'm experiencing for now, but it's not going to be forever. But Paul doesn't just give us a future hope. He also gives us a right-now hope. He throws us a lifeline right now for us as well, for while we're in these emotions and feelings and thoughts and everything that goes with it. And so right now, he says, the love of Christ can control us. Verse 14 says, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And I think if we want to understand more about how this love of Christ controls us versus the emotions or feelings, we do well to look at the concluding verse of this passage in verse 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, the old is gone, behold, the new has come. He starts off with in Christ. You are in Christ through faith, by God's grace. And this means that you have a new position. It's not just about Christ and us, which is important. And Paul just said how we have Christ's spirit indwelling us, guaranteeing us. But think about, I don't know if you're like me, but like I more often think about Christ coming down and helping me rather than seeing myself incorporated into Christ. I try to take the immensity of God, and fit him into my tiny little life to help me, rather than seeing how I am incorporated into Christ, spiritually and mysteriously, fully into Christ. It's a new position for me. It's a new reality. And if I let it form and shape my thoughts, it's a new identity. Um, You know, we go through Ephesians in our house churches because it has foundational information in it. That's why we go through it. And I think Ephesians 1 really helps us understand the most of what it means to be in Christ. Ephesians 1, 18 through 23 says, he's, Paul's praying for us, for the church, that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him." who fills all in all. It's saying that with us being in Christ, we have all the riches of his inglorious inheritance. We have the great work of his might that raised Christ from the dead, and we're seated with him. We are his body, the fullness of him. Revelations 3.21 also says that the one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father. Okay, now just for a minute, if you're going through like a hard day, if you're even going through a traumatic experience, do you think, well, that's right, I'm seated with Jesus in the heavenly realm as he's seated with his father. Might that just maybe give you a new perspective on things? 
And then Paul continues for giving us a right now hope. He says, the old is gone, the new has come. In fact, he says, behold, the new has come. I mean, if he were living like in 21st America, he'd be like, hashtag, the new has come. But I'm not trying to start some new movement or anything. So, But he's like, wow, this is really exciting stuff we should look into. And so, again, one of the foundational verses, chapters, books that we go through in our house churches, I think helps us understand what it means, the old is gone, the new has come. I actually memorized this when I was first a believer, and I was like, I don't even know what this means. <laughs> but as I started to study the scriptures more at TCC, I was in equipping classes with my husband. I was like, oh, I see what this is saying. And again, so in Colossians, it says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands or made without hands, by putting on the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses, having been raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, so that we're no longer dead in our trespasses, in that uncircumcision of our flesh, but we are alive spiritually in Christ. I mean, just think for a second what circumcision is, right? It's the cutting away, the cutting and throwing away of flesh. And that is what Christ has done for us. He has cut away the power of the old sinful flesh nature, and we have been reborn, regenerated, recreated spiritually with Christ's spirit. That just so happened to raise him from the dead. Pretty powerful spirit at work in us. It's proven to have conquered that flesh nature. But one of the worst things I could think of that could happen if someone were here today and listening to my sermon, struggling maybe with emotions and feelings and thoughts and how do I navigate it all, if they walked away and they thought, okay, I just got to let the love of Christ control me. I got to pull myself up by the bootstraps and white knuckle it and let the love of Christ control me versus emotions and feelings. But it's really not about white knuckling it. It's not about fruit stapling. That's what Paul Tripp calls it in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. It's not like I could just staple on Christ's love. Now it controls me or any other character or virtue. So how? How do we move from the emotions and the feelings and the thoughts and the hormones and everything else pumping through our body and move to the love of Christ controlling us? I would submit to you we need the powerful affection. We need the explosive power of a new and more powerful affection. And that's an, actually the name of a book and a sermon by an old Scottish Puritan preacher named Thomas Chalmers. He's from the 1800s. And he puts it this way. He says, it's seldom that any of our tastes, our habits, our lifestyles are made to disappear by a mere process of natural extinction. And the heart must have something to cling to. That's his point in his sermon. He goes on for 11 pages about how the heart is always clinging to something. 
and the superior affection for God through the free gospel of Christ is necessary to displace worldly affections. In short, it means the only way to overcome the seeming control of our emotions and our feelings and our thoughts is by turning to worship God and giving him control rather than all the other stuff. Now, in some of my worst moments, when I was really struggling with anxiety and panic attacks, if you would have told me that I was worshiping something else, maybe worshiping my panic or my fear, Instead of God, I don't think I would have understood what you were saying. But really, because I would have situations that would cause emotions and feelings and fear and panic, and those would just control me. And they controlled every choice and thought I had. Really, I was worshiping those because I gave them a free pass to control. I gave him a free pass to direct everything. That's all I could hear or think of at times. But sometimes, little by little, and sometimes in big moments, God would help me to turn and not give that every attention and focus of mine. And I would turn and worship God in the midst of those feelings and thoughts and emotions. And that is how, that is what Chalmers is saying, that we worship our way out of the control of those other things that our heart is clinging to. Whether we think we want to cling to them or not, our actions will show if we actually are clinging to them. 2 Corinthians 10, just a couple chapters later in this letter to the Corinthians, puts it this way. It says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy the strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Just because I have an emotion or a feeling or lots of thoughts doesn't mean I have to let it hold me captive. Because Christ died and I am in Christ His power can help me overcome and turn from that. Romans 8, 5, and 6 puts it this way. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. If you've ever been there, you know what I mean. But to set the mind on the spirit, his life and peace. When we worship God in the midst of our messes, we allow his power to free us from that enslaving other affections, whether it's emotions or feelings, thoughts, addictions, voluntary slavery. And I think if we also want to understand how, how do we worship our way out of our messes, we can look to Jesus at probably his greatest emotional struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I think we can learn first 
about how to worship our way out of stuff by seeing what Jesus didn't do. He didn't stuff it and try to ignore it and pretend like his emotions weren't there. He didn't try to distract himself. He didn't try to find some release. He didn't even have anybody there for him. He didn't try to numb it somehow. Instead, and we see it in his prayer, instead we see him facing his emotions and his feelings and expressing them to God. And I believe the way he could fully face all of those emotions and feelings and thoughts is because he knew his heavenly father was big enough to handle any emotion or feeling or thought he was experiencing. And he submitted himself with all his stuff, with all his emotions, with all his feelings, with all his thoughts to the heavenly father. When we choose to turn and thank God and adore God and acknowledge God for his beauty and his glory and his regeneration of us and his pursuit of his love for us, I think it's almost impossible to stay in that dark, vast chasm of other affections. And if you've ever been in redemption group with me, I've probably asked you, what would it look like to worship God in the midst of whatever it is that you're going through? I'm not saying he's going to take it away. We're living in this stuff, this earthly tent. But what would it look like to worship him in the midst of this and to know God on the far side of it, to be confident in him? So where do we go from here? As we walk out today, as we move forward in our lives, I hope we can move forward with maybe the comfort and encouragement that, yeah, it is a normal human experience to have limitations and shortcomings and weaknesses in this human body, and some of those things include our emotions and feelings and ensuing thoughts. But hopefully, as we experience those things, and know we're not the only one, <laughs> that we can also know that we don't have to give them a free pass to control us just because they pop in our head or pump in through our body. Sometimes, I can remember when I was at home, I didn't even know why I was having emotions and feelings. <laughs> but I don't have to give them a free pass to control me. Christ's love can control me as I turn and worship him and behold him and adore him in the midst of it all. And when I was finishing up my sermon notes, I thought to myself, you know, there might be people there who maybe just feel stuck in their emotions and feelings and thoughts and would just love to have someone to pray with, to help them to get unstuck, to help them to start to turn to worshiping God and giving him control in the midst of everything. So at the end of the service, at the end of the last song, if you feel like you would really appreciate having somebody to pray with, just to help you start to get unstuck and let God have control and to worship him, there's going to be some people up front. I'm going to be up front. You're welcome to come up. They would love for you to just, they would count it a privilege if you would want it to come up and just say, 
I need some prayer. I feel really stuck. And I also thought, maybe for some people, maybe this idea of emotions and feelings and thoughts not getting control sounds so foreign because they've never come to the point where they've, by faith, have put their faith in Christ, in his power and his resurrection to give him control. And so if that's you, if you've never come to that point where you're like, I have never acknowledged Christ and his work and his power as control over all things, and I would like to do that. When I close in prayer, I'm going to express that. And if that's the desire of your heart, please pray that along with me. And then if you'd like to know, like, okay, what do I do now? (laughs) You could talk to, again, any of us up here up front at the end or anyone with a lanyard in the lobby. I'm sure they would be more than happy to direct you in maybe how to follow up in that faith. So let me pray for us.